Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. John J. Thompson, and if 14-year-old me could see into the future and realize that 37 years later, as a decrepit dinosaur in his early 50s, he would still be raving about the brilliance of the artist we have with us today, well, he would not be surprised at all. Since they came into my ears and imagination, the 77s have remained one of the most formative and significant parts of my musical and spiritual diet. I was 14, still rocked by some significant childhood trauma, I was looking for spiritual answers that were hefty and gritty enough to stand up to my confusion. Michael Rowe and his eclectic band of boundary-pushing compatriots were everything I hoped rock and roll could be. true tunes were planted when I first gazed upon this amazing new wave progressive pre-alternative rock band at the Cornerstone Festival back in 1984. I witnessed the 77s perform a frenetic set that left me literally breathless. I could not believe that this band was not on MTV playing all of the coolest venues and on the cover of Spin or Rolling Stone. That night also featured, among others, Carrie Livgren of Kansas and another artist that would have a profound effect on teenage JJT, the festival's hosts, Chicago's own Res Band. 
Why in the world was this music so hard to find in local record stores? It pulsed with energy. It was edgy and confrontational and felt kind of dangerous. It was everything I loved about rock and roll. I wanted to make that kind of music myself. I needed to be in a band as soon as possible. When I hear boomers talk about the impact the Beatles had on them, I immediately think of the 77s and Cornerstone 84. My personal timeline was reset. There was life before I knew that kind of music was possible and everything that's happened since. This is the way love is. exaggerating the importance of today's guest, Michael Rowe, as the frontman for the 77s, as a solo artist, as a member of the legendary Lost Dogs, and as one half of Kerosene Halo should be a household name. As has been the case with so many other greats though, Rowe's fame is limited to a small, passionate cadre of fans and friends. Although he had a brush with mainstream success when the 77's self-titled album came out on the same label as U2, on the same day as the Joshua Tree actually, and was endorsed by Rolling Stone and other respected press outlets, the kind of breakthrough that artists depend on never materialized. What was in didn't stop him though. The 77s evolved through the 80s, the 90s, the aughts, and right up to today. In fact, when the pandemic canceled their touring plans, Roe and drummer Bruce Spencer started a brilliant weekly live YouTube show. Since April of 2020, Roe, Spencer, and their guests have mined both the Sevens Deep catalog and loads of formative songs from their own rock, pop, country, gospel, blues, and even jazz heroes. Over 100 of these Coronasphere shows have been released so far. While 
Mike and I have been friends for years now, and I've interviewed him several times, I wanted to really dig in and hear about his roots, his drive, his progression, and what kind of wisdom might his considerable challenges, scars, and close calls have earned him. In fact, like our special episodes with Rose Lost Dogs bandmate Terry Scott Taylor, we have way too much to fit into just one episode. So this will also be a two-parter. already a fan of Michael Rowe in the 77s, I promise you'll hear some stories and some music that you've never heard before, including a 15-year-old Rowe playing guitar on a super rare 1969 recording, something that took Bruce and I, who count ourselves among the most devoted 7s fans, by complete surprise. If you're not familiar with this band, though, I hope you'll find this story of near misses and dogged determination both fascinating and instructive. The 77s are one of the greatest rock bands never to break through. The story begins right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Hey there. I'm Mark Feldbush from Columbus, Ohio. I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I've also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. Really wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a heck of a lot to me. And I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, if you're not driving, of course, to leave a rating and a review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out the podcast to platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive the numbers up together. Thanks. All right, let's step into the virtual True Tunes interview suite with the one and only Michael Doc Love Rowe. Hi there, <laughs> JJT. So, Michael Rowe, welcome to the True Tunes podcast, man. It is long overdue. I'm glad we're finally doing this. People have been going, when are you talking to Rowe? I'm like, we're we're developing the audience first because we got to have a big a room full of people before we bring someone like you on the stage. Well, what an honor to be uh, treated with such uh, importance. How are you doing? How, how's life? How are you feeling? Uh, could be worse, you know, at this point in my life. Uh, it's just all about enjoying the time with family and friends and trying to live every moment like it was my last because that's kind of almost true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's interesting to me is that 
at least from somewhat of a distance, it seems like you, you kind of came off a little bit more, uh, I won't say negative, but just kind of world weary and jaded for a while. And then now you, you just feel like you're full of joy. Like you're just pushing fun and joy and, and stuff into the world. Is there something that you recognize that was kind of a transition for you? Or am I just wrong? Was I just, did I offend you one day? And so you were grumpy. <laughs> I remember you might have said something like that years ago when I signed your autograph or, or you Well, there's two times. Well, when I, yeah, the, the show with Resban at College of DuPage, I asked you in the autograph line, I said, is Mike Rowe your real name or is that like a rock name? And you, you're, you're standing there with your triumphant hair and your shades and you're, you just kind of look down like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I said, like micro, like microwave or, you know. And you just shook your head and signed the oh, thing and handed geez. it to me. And I was like, oh, I just was crushed. Oh, <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's good. You, you don't want your rock stars to be too accessible when you're that age. You need to be kind of a, a removed from reality. I think, yeah. For the, for the magic to work, you know. Well, it's hard to take yourself seriously at this age because, you know, time has taken its toll. And I'm far more rotund. I don't fit into those rock clothes anymore. And... At this point in time, I feel like I'm your cousin, your cousin Vinny, you know, <laughs> like I, I feel like all my Italian aunts and uncles that used to show up, the ones that my parents and grandparents would never talk about when I was around, you know, yeah, right. uh, I, I'm that guy. Woke up in the morning and I felt like the black of night. Tumbled out of bed, tripped on my Bible, stumbled over the light. Blinded by the break of day, I shut my eyes, I was alone. Couldn't say my prayers, good God Almighty, where's my telephone? Now I know, now I know. When you told me you wanted to hold me and hold me Hold me forever Hold me never I think that this last couple of years of seeing you do the weekly show on YouTube has been amazing. Just the musically a lot of fun. The relationship with you and Bruce, you telling the stories, it just feels like there's you've got a lot to offer and you're offering it up on a regular basis. So That's really thank interesting. You, that. you know, I didn't set out to do that. That was that was Bruce's idea because he went into desperation mode. It's like once he realized the whole world was shutting down and all of our work and touring and and public access was being removed from us. He calls me, he says, dude, we have to do this thing. You know, it's, it's all the rage. People are doing it. They're going online. Let's get ahead of the game and do it really well. Let's get like pro cameras, pro lighting, pro audio, and try to do something that's better. And so we just kind of stumble into it. We didn't know what we were doing. You know, we're over talking at first. And uh, after a while, the show started to take shape. It mm -hmm. developed its own little fan base of loyal followers. So every week there's going to be about 50 people on there watching it live. And then 
Uh, over the next week or two, it might gain another four or 500 views. Sometimes it's gone up to 1,000. It really depends on, on uh, word of mouth and just if people have time. Yeah. But it's created its own new culture. It gives me a chance to sort of spout off about a lot of my favorite records and artists and the history behind things. You know, I, I don't want to come across like a musicologist or a boring professor. It, for me, it's just stuff I've always been really interested in. Since we did a Dolly Parton song, it's not right to not do a Porter Wagner song because Dolly started with Porter as his backup singer and partner, and they did tons of... Had tons of hits, and but at some point she knew she needed to leave, and that's when she wrote "I Will Always Love You," wow. because she knew it would break his heart, and it did. And wow, he got over it. But you know, I think he got really used to Dolly and what she brought to the table, and they had so many hits as a duo. Mm -hmm. So it was that was a tough breakup, but man, one of the greatest songs ever written came out of it, and I think eventually she, he did, he let it go, you know, but. Uh, Anyway, this is one of these tunes that I think Hank Williams could have written something like this. It's called The Cold Hard Facts of Life. Let me see if I can just get in this thing now. I got back in town a day before I'd planned to. I smiled and said, I'll sure surprise my wife I don't think that I'll phone I'll just get on home For I didn't know the cold hard facts of life I had a hard time keeping up with it because I, I kept thinking I have to sit down and watch something and I just don't have time to sit down right. in life. Yeah. But well, fortunately, once, it's, once going, it's done, it's there, and you could watch it at your leisure right. anytime. And I, I dial them up, and I put them on with my good headphones, and I go for a walk or a run, and I've listened to it mostly audio only. And yeah. it's just fantastic. I mean, it, it's fun to watch it sometimes, too, but I play it. I play the audio, and I play it in the house on Sunday morning. We're mm -hmm. like getting breakfast, and I've played it, and Michelle's listening and enjoying hearing your voice and hearing these stories. It's just, yeah, it's a, it's a totally different thing, born out of tragedy and necessity. But it's been, it's been a real grace, and, and I know a lot of people really do appreciate it. So thanks um, for it. It's a lot of work. I mean, you're. Oh my gosh, I was just going to say it's exhausting. Um, it takes two days of my life every week because the one day before, I'm frantically researching, compiling, doing the charts, doing the lyrics. If I don't know the song, I have to learn it on the fly. Uh, Bruce and I will. We don't even rehearse. We tried rehearsing once, and it was just a nightmare. We don't have time to do a full rehearsal. So uh, I usually get there early, and we'll run it down. Like if there's some things where we need to work over his harmony part, or if he's going to sing, or we're both going to share things, we make little notes. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, Bruce is chronically uh, not prepared. You know, I, I always send him the list of songs with YouTube links the night before. He never listens to them. You know, he waits until the last minute. He says, all right, so what are we doing? You know, I'm saying, did you not get the list? You know, it's like pulling teeth. But, but what, what that does is it puts us on the edge of our seat so that we don't know what's going to happen. And it creates a lot of spontaneity and goofing off and hilarity. And I mean, to me... I, I enjoy the humor about the show more than the music, usually, because the music I'm cringing because there's so many mistakes and we're screwing it all up. But I think audiences like to watch you blow it a little bit. And, and, <laughs> well, and, and a little bit. Human. And I think that 
<laughs> I, I think that from your perspective, your bar is pretty high and your skill set is so high that what you mean when something is blown it or has fallen off the rails is a lot different than when, when I screw something up. When I screw something up, it's not listenable. When you do it, it's, you know, there's moments, it's just like moments of humanity or like you're sitting in a coffee house or a pub. We're going to do a tune now by a songwriter that we have featured many times on this show, but not for a while, Mr. Terry Scott Taylor. Oh, yeah. Uh, this was an album that we did right after Gene Eugene passed, and we had to go record it at the Green Room, which was Gene's house and studio, which was very daunting because now, you know, we've got his ghost hovering in the room, and it was kind of like... There's a big horse. Are you going to get back on it and ride it? You know, and we didn't really know if we could, but uh, Terry wrote the entire album. He just came in with just all these amazing songs, and this is one that I begged him to let me sing. So uh, let's see. Boom, boom, boom. faith when you had died I was the one to hide my feelings You were the one to let them out My daddy taught me son Be tough and strong And that's what I've tried to do But now you're telling me girl You can't live like this That you might do real men cry? I never thought it was true. And when you mentioned Bruce, I'll tell you what, I've always been a fan of Bruce, but his role and his importance in, in the story of the 77s, I think, has really exploded uh, by watching this stuff. To, to, to hear him sing, to hear those stories and realize how long he's been a part. I think some people still think of him as the new drummer after yeah. Aaron. <laughs> it's like been well, 30 years Bruce, that he's been the, been the new drummer. You know, it's Bruce like, had a huge uh, job when he came into the group because he was replacing two members. He was replacing a legendary beloved drummer, right? He was also replacing David Lenhart, who had departed, went to move to Atlanta and got married and, you know, so now we're a three-piece, so he had to work double hard. The whole band had to work hard because now we were a three-piece. I prefer playing with another guitarist, but it forced me to have to really dig into my instrument and see if I could pull off this three-man thing, which means that you have to play orchestrally. Um, yeah. You have to play rhythm and lead at the same time uh, and everything in between, and the bass player has to step it up, and Bruce has to step it up. So... Doing the show, um, at first, you know, I just thought, no one's going to want to hear this. It's just me playing acoustic and you're beating on that stupid drum. <laughs> what that drum actually is, is a bass guitar. If you listen to it on a big oh, yeah. system with, a, with yeah. some woofers or something really solid, you'll realize that what he is providing is that massive floor that only a bass yeah. can give you. So it's creating a, yet another illusion. It's like the white stripes type deal where... 
you just fill up the sonic you know uh, landscape with what you have uh, he, as a singer I right now Bruce is far more technically skilled as a singer than I am and, and I always knew he had a good voice but he has really come into his own with this show it's given him the confidence uh, yeah. and the fans root for him every time he gets on there because yeah, he's yeah. he's younger he's got a bigger voice you know uh, he doesn't and he has the same interpretive skills when it's stuff that he's really into, you know, things that he grew up on. So it's it's stretching both of us to the limit of our abilities. And yeah. uh, it's exhausting. I mean, it takes a lot of work. And uh, we've talked about cutting back. We've talked about, you know, we haven't done reruns per se. Uh, yeah, it's insane to do a weekly show. It's really, really stupid. I know eventually uh, it's... it's I don't know how long it's going to last, but for now, it's become its thing, and it's helping us to promo other projects. And, you know, I don't know. It's a trip. Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. Sometimes it feels like this world's gone crazy. Take me back to yesterday When the line between right and wrong Didn't seem so hazy Did lovers really fall in love to stay Stand behind each other, come what may Promise really something people care Something they would say Families really bow their heads to pray Your daddies really never go away Whoa, whoa, Grandpa Tell me about the good old days We're going to take a quick break We'll be back with more from Michael Rowe right after this. Hey, this is Ray, and I'm a Patreon supporter of the True Tunes podcast. If you want to join me and the other supporters of this show, you can start with a monthly donation of $5, $10, or $20, which helps to cover the cost of producing and hosting the show. As a thanks for our support, we get early access to episodes and high-quality lossless wave files of each episode that we can download. We also have occasional Zoom meetups, some special live streams, discounts on TrueTune swag, and more. You can join me by visiting patreon.com slash truetunes or finding the link on the show notes page. If an ongoing patronage thing is not the right fit for you, but you'd like to give us a tip to help with the cost associated with this show, you can find links for that on the show notes page. Thanks. And now, back to my conversation with Michael Rowe. I'm born to preach the gospel. I'm born to preach the gospel. I'm born to preach the gospel. And I sure do love my job. 
I haven't never been to no college And I didn't get a chance in school But when Jesus Christ anointed me to preach the gospel He sure didn't leave me no fool Oh yeah, I'm born to preach the gospel Tell me about your childhood, kind of when music came into your life and when did you decide that it was there was something going on in this stuff that was worth really, really digging into and becoming a part of? Well, I think, it, you know, I started listening to rock and roll at three years old because my parents got their first hi-fi set in 1957 and it's the same one that's on the back of ario speedwagon's high infidelity album remember that little oh, blonde yeah. magnavox yeah. one piece yeah. furniture in the 50s every young married couple bought one of those and yeah. so my parents bought one and the first rec they had to get some records so they went and bought this album by fats domino called this is fats right and then they bought uh, some ricky nelson records and jerry lee lewis i had great balls of fire when it was new I had uh, Teddy Bear by Elvis Presley. And they bring all this music into the house. And I just, I don't know what it was. It connected with me as a three-year-old kid like nothing else. I still listen to my kitty records. I still watch cartoons on TV at Saturday morning. But that music was overwhelming. And it profoundly shocked them when they saw the effect it had on me. Because I, they said I would literally bang my head against the wall which maybe I was the first headbanger, I don't know, but they were watching me physically give myself over to the music, you know? It took over my life, and I think as a young Christian couple, they thought, oh boy, now we've brought the devil's music into the house, we need to take it away. So, but that, that, that just wasn't, it just wasn't gonna happen. I mean, it became kind of a push me, pull you, civil war for the rest of, all the way through adolescence and until I left home. But once I heard rock and roll, there was no turning back. Why must I always be the one Left behind, never having any fun Stood up, broken again But I guess I'll go on being a fool Sitting around just waiting for you Stood up, broken again But I know just what I ought to do I'll find somebody new, but baby, I couldn't forget about you. Stood up, broken Stood up. You were playing uh, when you were just a kid. You were, you know, rocking in garages with your friends throughout all those teen years, right? Um, off and on, uh, you know, there were uh, occasions where I'd get together with friends and we'd get a tape recorder, which. Which is great because most of these did get recorded, you know, in one way or another. Uh, one time we rented a uh, a school room from my one of my primary schools, and I jammed in there with a couple guys. One of which uh, his name is Jim Armstrong. He went on to play with Jan and Dean, Papa Do Run Run, the Beach Boys. He's like personal oh friends with Brian Wilson and so oh many God. people from that whole world. I mean, he's met everybody. And he's, it's not like he's a big shot in Hollywood or anything, but it's like he was my best friend uh, starting in third grade until we moved across town. We kept in touch and we're still good friends now. And uh, I jammed with him. It was great. I still have the tapes. Uh, years later, I 
jammed with Russell Ferrante, who uh, plays in the Yellow Jackets, and he's played with Joni Mitchell and all kinds of people. Uh, I grew up with Russ in church. We were sort of, our fathers were deacons in the church, and it was such a huge church that it had a diverse amount of kids in it, and Russell was always a very talented piano player, and I watched him develop from just a guy who took classical lessons to someone who was really interested in jazz and he turned me on to a lot of jazz that I hadn't known about uh, forever altering the course of my personal listening life not so much my professional one because I obviously don't play jazz I I love it dearly I wish I could because that's all I listen to now that I'm you know an old man but I've always listened to it since I was a kid and uh, I had no idea at the time that Russ and I were jamming that he would go on to actually make a name for himself in jazz, which, you know, the odds of that are so, so slim. But I thought if anyone could have done that, he would have, because he excelled at everything he did, whether it was sports, academics, piano, and it just all worked out for him. So I'm, I'm proud of a lot of my friends. There was another guy uh, in one of my top 40 bands named uh, Jerry Cortez, who now plays uh, guitar for Tower of Power. Wow. As does Roger Smith, who was, you know, on the oh, fringe yeah. of our warehouse exit right. group and played on a lot of our records and so on and so forth. So uh, over the years, I've gotten to, you know, play with a lot of real top flight musicians, which has meant a lot to me personally. It's always a great honor if you're included in a group of people that you admire as players and as right. artists. So uh, it's been a big privilege for me to sort of hobnob with some of these guys and, you know, have them actually consider me somewhere in their league, you know? <laughs> sure, yeah. So it's, awesome. that, that means a lot to me personally, you know. It's not a big ego trip or anything. It's just something that I, I feel is a great blessing to me and a great honor. When I was about 15, a bunch of guys from this uh, Bible college in the Santa Cruz Mountains uh we're starting a group. They wanted a big group uh, at college, and they wanted it to be like Blood, Sweat, and Tears in Chicago, which were popular at that time. It was 1969. So one of the guys that was going to the college went to my church. He knew me, and, and he said, I know this 15-year-old kid who's really good. By then, I'd been playing guitar for about, I don't know, five years. So I passed the audition, and we started doing gigs that are very similar to the kind of gigs that I play. I've been playing with the Lost Dogs and 77s and Dairy, you know, uh, for the last, you know, 40 years. I mean, it's the same old stuff. You know, you get some sort of hip youth pastor that decides he's going to have, he's going to bring a rock band to the, you know, to the Northern California youth rally, right, of his church. And we'd go in there guns ablaze and we learned, you know, all the hits by Blood, Sweat and Tears in Chicago. And then we, we, uh, wrote our own songs. We had some other contemporary Christian songs, some of the Ralph Carmichael stuff that was happening at the time. And What uh, was that band called? It was called Brotherhood. But I was just a kid and, you know, they were in college. They were 21 years old. The draft was happening. Vietnam was happening. And uh, they would come home, you know, they would spout a lot of liberal sort of, you know, rhetoric. Uh, things like, well, uh, communism is 
ordained of God because there isn't any government that God, you know, that that exists that God didn't allow to have happen. So I would just take that little sound bite home to my parents and they would just lose their minds because it's like, wait a minute, we don't want you hanging out with these pinkos, you know, and so eventually they <laughs> exerted pressure on me to quit the group and I was ready to quit at that time anyway. Did you anyway. ever do a recording with them? Yes, we did one record. Uh, you might remember the Archers, Gary Archer, the father of the Archers group, uh, started a little record label called Charisma. And and we did a record for him, a 45 single, and it was, it was supposed to be the theme song for uh, what they call Christ Ambassadors, the CA convention in, in uh, Fresno, California. This particular event was quite big and uh, youth pastors and other pastors came from all over the country. There was about 15,000 of them. And we were asked to, to write the theme song, which was called The Now Life, you know, very sort of 60s, you know, up with people kind of theme. And so we came up with the tune and the guest speaker was Jimmy Swaggart of all people. Remember, this was 1969. He was still a fairly young man. I think I've got a record. He, he would put his sermons on records, right? And actually yeah. sell the records. Oh, yeah. A couple of those. So he was the guest speaker. Well, I didn't realize that he was Jerry Lee Lewis's cousin and that his whole shtick with his sermon was talking about how they grew up together with Mickey Gilly was another cousin. The three of them grew up together. They all learned how to play piano in the honky-tonks, you know, in Mississippi. And uh, at some point, Jimmy Swagger got the call to become a minister, and he he built this whole thing around the fact that he followed God's way and Jerry Lee Lewis took the devil's way. And so that's what he was going to preach about. But he had no idea that a rock band had been hired to do the music for this thing <laughs> so so we go up we go up and we play the song we go underneath the stage and i'm you know i'm taking off my clothes and some guy runs he says you got to get back up there they're all on their feet stamping and cheering and uh, so we go and take a curtain call and i'm watching fifteen thousand people as a 15 year old kid doing a standing over for something i just did it was a very heady experience it was thrilling but was what was even more interesting, though, was to then sit in the audience and watch Jimmy Swaggart have to try to preach against what 15,000 pastors just did a standing ovation for. So How did the uh, records sell after that? <laughs> oh, we sold all of them. We had a little oh, sort of great. teenage... Yeah, yeah. yeah after so the thing was over, we had a little teenage dance and get-together, a little mixer in one of the side rooms. Nice. And they all came and they just... And Gary Arch is sitting there, all right, Brotherhood Single, Brotherhood Single. He's hawking them like, you know, like hot dogs. And uh, I thought I was, you know, King Kong. That was a real thrilling experience. Baby cry 
But the group didn't last, and eventually I became disillusioned and sort of got caught up more in the ways of the world and being an adolescent. And my inner dream of wanting to evangelize the world with rock music wasn't going to take place for a while. So won't you help me up this path? Maybe I'm heading for a neon epitaph. But that's not my plan. Don't want to be an also ran. Just want to be the main man any possible way that I can. You were growing up in the um, in that San Jose area at the in the late 60s. I mean, that is a hotbed of live music experimentation, the psychedelic era. So, as a kid, you're growing up hearing that stuff. You've how did that stuff kind of form you and inform you? Uh, it was you very important uh, because it gave you a community to be part of. It wasn't just you know I was taking lessons. I took lessons from a guy named Bud Eastman who started Guitar Player Magazine. He ran a place called Guitar Showcase, which was a guitar shop, not unlike Guitar Center, but it had all the teachers. All the teachers were in rock bands. One of my teachers was in a band called The Syndicate of Sound. They had a number one record called Little Girl. And so uh, even Terry Taylor, who I didn't know at the time, was one of the bands in San Jose that was experiencing these same things, shopping at Guitar Showcase. It was a real hangout. And so even though I was a kid, I was already hanging out with guys that were several years older that were making their way into the rock music business. And they all kind of wanted to be the Rolling Stones. And so it gave, uh, you know, a certain edge to what was happening. And then in the middle of all that, we had the Summer of Love, San Francisco, Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service. And I think that those sounds had, even though they were kind of foreign to me when I was a kid, I didn't really care for that music as much when I was a kid, although I loved the airplane. Uh, as I got older, I realized that I was going to keep coming back to that stuff. And that's why my guitar playing has been influenced a lot by guys like Jerry Garcia and Yorma Kalkin and people that are combining folk, jazz, country, bluegrass uh, all of it into rock and roll. Um, right. They were good mentors for me because that's, I was watching it happen firsthand, even though I was young. If you want to get to heaven Over on the other shore Stay out of the way Stained bandit, oh good shepherd, feed my sheep. One for Paul, 
sadness One for to me My heart rejoices Can't you hear my lambs a-calling Oh, good shepherd my You have the advantage of being in a culture there where you had some some faith and some spiritual formation going on at home, but you also were in this culture that had a, the whole spirit in the air was kind of about spiritual searching. You know, it was, um, there was something, it was kind of cool to be a, a, a bit of a mystic. Um, but then you're you're saying that you're in the same place as like, you know, Larry Norman came out of there and Randy Stone. Yes, and that's that right. Jesus movement thing that we keep you know, we just can't get away from because it seems like, you know, that was such a huge thing. It seems like you're kind of on the fringe of both the the evolution of FM rock and the Jesus movement is kind of happening all around you at that time. Yeah. And seeing guys like Larry Norman and, and Stonehill and others like that, later Phil Kage, those were the first people that actually turned on a very big light bulb in my head because I thought there's nothing. Those guys are totally cool. They look cool. They sound cool. But they're singing for Jesus, you know, and they're and uh, they sort of became quasi mentors in the back of my mind, and they would become more important to me later on. But at the time, just knowing that that existed, that was like I'm going, man, there's something new happening here. Gonorrhea on Valentine's Day, and you're still looking for the perfect lay. You think rock and roll. You'll be dead before you're 33 Shooting junk till you're half insane Broken needle in your purple vein Why don't you look into Jesus? He got the answer What was your journey like in terms of spiritual discovery and how that weaves into your musical stuff? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, when you're born into an evangelical tradition like Assemblies of God, which is known for being fairly conservative, although I've been so out of touch with them for so many decades now, I wouldn't know how much that's changed. I know their music has gotten hipper. Theologically, they're probably still pretty much where they were, although, you know, they've probably had to adapt to the times in a lot of ways. I'm not sure. I haven't I haven't spent a lot of time talking to people from the Assemblies of God for a long time. I'd, I'd love to do that. But being raised in that fairly strict, uh, conservative theological place, you know, shapes you profoundly. There's not really any getting away from it, you know. I will always probably view the Bible and Christianity and the world through that lens to some extent. I I think it's the same as if you're born and raised Catholic or Jewish Mm -hmm. or even Muslim or, or, you know, Mm -hmm. Hindu. Those things are always going to be at the bedrock of your consciousness spiritually because the same way how you learn language or learn anything from your parents, those formative years shape you. So I've noticed a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my friends, uh, other people I know have taken this sort of radical deconstruction, almost rancorous, bitter position towards the evangelical movement. Um, and I have chosen to not do that, even though I've been a I kind of went Anglican several years ago um, because of some, a a dear friend of mine that moved out here that sort of 
we started this little fellowship uh, with him, and it's grown and it's it's moved along a certain path. And so, you know, I've kind of gone to a more traditional, older tradition that right. you know is more rooted in the early church and. We follow the church calendar like Episcopalians do and Catholics do and all of that. That's very new for me because that all f- we were raised to feel like that's all cold and ritualistic and there's no life right. in it. You know, it, it's always about some sort of dynamic personality and a guy with a really bad tie and a lot of right. emotion, a lot of excitement that sort of, you know, building the uh, your sort of trajectory around, you know, God's spirit is really moving. We're going to win this city for Christ. And, you know, it's all about those kinds of things. Whereas yeah. the tradition I'm in now is a little bit quieter, a little bit more community service oriented, actually getting down into making relationships with people and not, not specifically to convert them, but to be part, again, of a community. Because I don't think that anything happens outside of community anything spiritual or musical or anything you know i think we're meant to be part of the community we're in that shapes us while we try to shape it for 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 better jesus is the holy life turning darkness into light there are strange things We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Michael Rowe, so don't go anywhere. Hello, my name's Rob, and I'm one of the Patreon backers of the True Tunes podcast. I'm honored to invite you to join me in support of True Tunes by signing up on their email list. I know email is often annoying, but by being on the list, I get notified when new episodes drop and when new articles get posted at truetunes.com. Sometimes, John even sends out short notes and gives away records and swag and stuff. Super cool. But really, the point is that by staying directly connected, I know that they don't have to pay Facebook or anyone else in order for me to hear from them, and that's important. They don't send out too many emails either, and I'm always happy to get them. So really, it would be helpful if you'd join me over here. You can find the sign-up link on the front page at truetunes.com. Oh, and don't forget to add John's email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that the emails don't get caught in your spam filter. And if you have any feedback on the show or questions, you can email him and he'll get back to you eventually. Thanks for listening. 
True Tunes is on the road. I've been to Indiana, California, Tennessee, Iowa, and Illinois so far, and we are currently looking at opportunities around the country. These conversations have been a lot of fun, with me bringing a turntable and some records and a guitar, and often finding artists or other special guests to join me. I've also done songwriting workshops, music business clinics, and even some conversations about how we can slow ourselves down and listen to music more carefully, more thoughtfully, and yes, more spiritually. So there's kind of something for everyone. You can follow all of the action at truetunes.com slash events. And if you would be interested in having me come speak in your neck of the woods, drop me a line at jjt at truetunes.com and let me know. I'm also excited to be aligning with the Porchlight Network for house shows. Porchlight is a growing network of house show venues around the country, and you can learn more at porchlight.art. So, for house shows, look me up at Porchlight. For schools, venues, churches, or other opportunities, just connect with me directly. Hey, this is Ray, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I also follow and listen to the weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. And boy, is it eye-opening. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts and from across a wide range of genres, including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and more. I've discovered tons of new songs and artists and have been reminded of things I love from long ago. It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically every week. And don't miss the massive archive list where all the previous lists get saved. It now features over 5,000 songs. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, please support the artists you love once you discover them. Thanks. We're back with Doc Love. My first awareness of you is with this super progressive, uh, edgy, alternative rock band that comes from a church that's kind of operating a alternative label, and it would sound nothing like uh, conservative, cult, you know, Ralph Carmichael or any of that stuff. So tell me about the genesis of the 77s and how you found yourself moving into that community and what kind of impact that had on you. Well, without getting too deeply into uh, how it 
how it came to happen originally, let's just say that I was on a mission from God. Um, I was in the middle of living my life a certain way in San Jose, playing in a popular group, playing in bars and pizza parlors and restaurants. And in the middle of all that, I had a, an epiphany, a very profound spiritual experience in which, you know, I sort of had a one-on-one -on -one close encounter with, you know, the living God. Uh, it was terrifying. It was upending. It was, I, I can't get into it because it, there's just too much. We could do a whole 10 hour series on it. What that experience led to was me moving from San Jose to Sacramento. And in Sacramento, there was a church called Warehouse Ministries that was founded by an Assemblies of God evangelist and his wife. But what it turned into was a group of hippies, artists, musicians, painters, you name it. It became this multicultural sort of happening where people were doing music and they were having concerts every week that were uh, featuring contemporary Christian music of all kinds. Well, I landed in the middle of that and the first thing that happened is I got hired to be the producer of a show called Rock and Religion, right. which uh, was originally just a, a, an interview music show featuring contemporary Christian musicians. In time, our founder, Mary Neely, wanted to start featuring secular music and highlighting the spiritual influences on that. So for a few years there, and we, we were on a lot of stations. I mean, this thing went all over the world. We were on WNEW in New York City. It was, and I was, I found myself in the middle of doing a lot of research. She was leaning hard on my sort of rock musicology that you mentioned earlier. Um, and we interviewed a lot of people. Uh, we got Steve Turner, the uh, poet mm -hmm. journalist from England on staff as a guy you know sending us shows from over there so he'd go interview pete townsend and then and then send us the the tapes and we'd create a show out of it uh, we got interviews with the grateful dead which was a real thrill for me um all kinds of people carrie livgren when he first became a christian so in the middle of that uh this church wanted to start a band from members of the church in order to advertise to schools around the area the kind of concerts they were having on a weekly basis. And so they asked me, Jan Eric, uh, Jim Abeg, Mark Proctor, Mark Tootle. Uh, Abeg for some reason was too busy. I don't know if he was having his first kid or whatever, but he, he eventually dropped out and so it was Jan, it was the four of us. And that was called the Scratch Band because we, it was just thrown together from scratch. And we went out and played every high school, every youth authority, every law school, prisons, I mean, college campuses. It was, it was insane. And then we started playing concerts there at the warehouse and built our own little following. And after about four years, uh, the radio show had ended and they built a studio there in the church. 
and uh, we made our first record. It was called Ping Pong Over the Abyss, and it was made up of songs that we had been doing at all those high schools for four years. I heard about the light of progress. I could never see that far. Couldn't find the light of success. Must have had a change of I, I can't tell you all of this without mentioning Steve Scott because he right. was on staff there. Uh, you know, he came over and connected with Larry Norman, and Larry recorded an album with him that he never released. But Steve ended up giving us all those songs on that unreleased album. That was our first material. So Steve introduced me to so much great music from Europe and England and around the continent. He was one of the most incredibly hip, intelligent guys I'd ever met. And having him as a mentor was crucial at that time because music was about to change profoundly. You know, to get me from the 70s to the 80s required someone leading me by the hand. And Steve was the guy. He was the <laughs> perfect guy. He knew about U2 long before they were famous. I remember him playing. He handed me the boy album and said, listen to this. Very interesting. Listen to the lyrics, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm going, whoa, there's something going on there, isn't there, you know? And, and when October came out, he made me listen to that. He made me listen to XTC, made me listen to God knows, I mean, everything. Right. So I was having quite an influx of information. And all of that turned us from a band that was just the boys in the church, you know, advertising for the church to serious artists wanting to make some cool music for our own we started writing our own songs and uh we did that first record ping pong which was sort of extremely evangelical because that's what we were doing you know yeah but by but the time we got it had, a, it had a punk snarl to it too i mean it's even a little bit yeah i mean there was still there was a lot of 70s stuff left over yeah. and uh a little bit of new wave a little bit of tom petty it was just sort of all over the place On the second album, um, we switched drummers and got Aaron Smith on drums, and he was coming into it playing already in a group called Romeo Void, and he'd had a, a real powerful musical pedigree that from the R&B world. So right. we were all in awe of him, and we didn't want him to leave or upset him. It's almost <laughs> like we had to raise our standards so much higher to meet where he was in order to keep him around. And so that made the group better. And I think the All Fall Down album was our first attempt at trying to do something 
way better than what we'd been doing for the last five years. different about the sociology and the psychology and the theology of the warehouse that allowed you guys to stay so in, uh, connected to the real world? I just think we realized that the way the gospel had been presented, not preaching-wise, but musically, was very old hat, and that if we were going to get anyone's ear, we had to be not just current, but really cutting edge. And, and it's certainly starting to see groups like U2 rise to the front of popular music we saw an example of how it can be done right you know in other words it's uncompromised it's not beating people over the head with a message they were very good mentors for us as far as uh, you know seeing something done really well and having that high standard of excellence trying to be better songwriters better producers make better sounds in the studio and that's why the 77s ultimately became a workshop to me rather than a rock band because we didn't play that much. You know, we didn't have as many opportunities to, to play. We, we were r trying to run a church, you know. Uh, we couldn't leave and go on tour for two years and, and live in a van and, and all that stuff. So what we did was we just dug into our craft. And to this day, the 77s to me is still all about learning how to do something rather than arriving and achieving and and being sort of a one style thing it's like it's all about taking that potpourri of influences and learning from it and we found a small group of very loyal people that followed us somehow it resonated with those people and we're grateful because here we are 40 years later you know they're all grandparents like us but they're still tapped into it because it meant something to them. It represented freedom. It represented not being squeezed into some sort of mold by your church or your pastor or whoever. It was about you being the person God created you to be, whether that was musically or any other part of your life. I think we ended up becoming, representing something far more than just good rock music. I think it was about how to be a person in this world as a Christian and, and have it make sense. And in the 40 years that we've been together, our fan base now is in 
incredibly diverse. I mean, we've got atheists, we've got communists, we've got people that don't know what they believe. We still have hardcore conservative right-wing Trumpers. We've got, you name it, and they all love to fight. You know, if I post something (laughs) that I know is going to get them riled up, it's funny to watch them all attack each other. And I'm going, well, there it is. It's a microcosm of the world we live in now. It's not just, you know, the people we started out with. It's like a lot of those people have changed and morphed over the years, as have we. It's really interesting to see that they all still love our music and put up with the gospel message that is either, you know, bubbling under the hot 100 or very overt. That's why I have chosen, Bruce and I have chosen to do old time hymns, which are really, really out front, you know, and it it pisses off some people. (laughs) But for me, that's a big part of our tradition. And oddly enough, again, a lot of this came from from Bruce, not me. He always seems to push for that real sort of old-timey stuff. I think it's because the message isn't, it isn't wishy-washy or watered down. It's just, it's just very matter-of-fact, take it or leave it, you know? And it also comes from a rich tradition in our country, you know? Whether you love or hate God, this music has a role in who we are as Americans, you know, and you couldn't have had rock and roll without it. Peter was preaching the gospel. He was standing with 11 men. I'm sure you'll wind up in heaven, son, if you only want to come in. I think that the Island album is one of the 10 great albums of all time. I've, I've been saying that, and you, you're not as big a fan of that record. Um, I think track to track, it flows together. It's, but maybe that's because I've listened to it 10 million times. But For me, when I listen to like the Island album, part of the reason why I'm so hard on it is because we had already cut demos for all those songs that we liked because they were just, we hardly knew the songs when we cut the demos. We did them loud and crude and very indie, very rough, you know, with Steve Griffith engineering. And I felt like we'd already made those statements. When, you know, when Island hired their sort of staff producer, Robert Musso, to fly out to Exit and try to re-record this stuff, he did a great job as far as getting it all very technically right and everything was balanced. But to me, it always, I already felt like we'd already spilt it. You know, the energy was gone. We were just trying to recreate something and get it all perfect. And so what I hear when I hear that record is is a very sort of, not antiseptic, but extremely clean, not as much energy thing versus the crude demos we did with Griffith. And to me, I kind of go for things that are a little bit rougher, you know. If you're going to do a production and you're going to make it immaculate and perfect, then 
I want it to be something the band decided to do rather than some outside producer did, if that makes sense. We kind of felt put upon, like, you know, this guy comes in, he's just going to get it on tape and that's it. So, you know, being on the inside of it, it colors it in a different way. As a kid, it was exciting to me for a couple of reasons. One is it was hard to find. In fact, I had my first job as a music buyer at a religious gift shop, and I had to go buy copies of it at the mainstream store and then take them over and sell them at my store. And I didn't make any profit on it, but I just had to have that record on our shelves. And for those of us who were fans of that, it was like, oh my gosh, this is a mainstream band that I'm still even a little bit bothered by some of these lyrics in, a, in the right kind of rock and roll way. Like I... A rocket in my pocket got no fuel you know it's like i was going what how is this <laughs> this is so much bigger and more um crazy than what i was starting to hear that was called christian rock so i don't know i i guess i think maybe this is an example of one of those times when um the art that the artist makes you got to let that go and, you, and then the way the audience receives it might be completely different than how the artist perceives it but oh, it's still yeah. magical. And it, it well, it's like just like ping pong over the abyss. I was ashamed of for years. I just thought it was crappy. You know, I always compare it to like, you know, Boy by U2. I'm going, now that's a hip record. That's a great first album. And I listen to ping pong. It just seems a bit corny, you know. And then I realized that, you know, okay, you made the record, but once you put it out, it isn't yours anymore. Now you've yeah. given it to the public. And what, what the public does with it and what it means to them is entirely different you have to let it go it's like your kid you raise your kid the best you could for better or worse when the kid goes out in the world the kid does what he's going to do the kid's not yours anymore you know and so i've been able to be a little bit easier on myself and stop comparing myself to you two and anyone else and just go look your life now if you're enjoying it is is partially because of that record you know sure. let that record mean what it means to people and don't be so hard on it it's just a record you know in the end it doesn't matter but it really mattered to an awful lot of people you say you're sorry i can't get over it i said i forgive you i can't get over it you say you learn from this mistake i can't get over it i should be giving you a break Time heals every wound I can't get 
if it wasn't for you too, that island record would have been a smash hit, right? It's their fault. No, no, no. Now that I want to, I want to dispel one of the biggest myths of all time, and that's that you two killed our career on Island. First of all, you two got bigger than Island could handle. Okay, at some point they should have gone to Chris Blackwell and said, "Can we jump to Atco or Warner's or whatever the the parent company was?" Because they would have sold ten times the amount of records. They needed the entire Warner Atco Atlantic uh, machinery to even keep up with that kind of success. You know, when we went and toured their offices, there was no one there because they were all on the road with you two, desperately hanging on for dear life, trying to get the work done. You know, so it wouldn't have mattered if if we'd been anyone else. In point of fact, all they were required to do was to press a certain amount of copies, distribute them, put their logo on it. That was it. So, you know, we were ready to play ball, but Island just couldn't. It was not that they wouldn't, they couldn't. And uh, so it was the wrong label to be on at that time. But it definitely was great for getting, like, the record review was great in Rolling Stone. We Mm -hmm. got Interview Magazine. Uh, I could call any number of nightclubs anywhere in the country and say, Island Recording Artists coming through, give us a date. And we could get a date in all the prestigious clubs. I mean, it was, as far as the hip factor, it was incredible. But, you know, I am very grateful that U2 was able to have the success they had with the Joshua Tree at the time. It was a massive move forward. And I don't know how they accomplished it with that label, to be honest with you. I always feel sorry when people, I guess they, you know, maybe it makes them feel better to feel like, you know, it's we're a, their, it's a their little secret that U2 ruined. And it's like, nothing could be further from the truth. The wind blows through the valley carries away the clouds The stars seem so much brighter this night Orion's bell to shine The big dipper's upside down Over us it's pouring out It's light You slip your arms around me Draw me to your side The full moon shines down so clear Is that music in the distance For a moment of time There is nowhere else but here So when you think about like the 90s, you guys transition into sort of phase three of the 77s um, or three and four. You transition into working with these alternative Christian labels, kind of labels on the fringe of the Christian music world. What drew you to that? Were you concerned about, you know, being uh, welcomed in that space? Or how did that end up after all those years of being kind of mainstream minded? How did you end up deciding to go into the Christian music world? I think it was out of necessity because Mm. the whole exit thing had fallen apart and we still had all these tapes that hadn't been released. And so I think Sean Doty was the guy who approached Joe Taylor and Gene and said, look, you know, you need to give these, maybe sign these guys, let them put, give them a way to put all this stuff out. 
and they got a hold of us and uh, it wasn't long before we were able to release all those sticks and stones those are all our demo tapes to try to get a record deal you know we were mm -hmm. playing the Roxy doing showcases we had you know Paul Atkinson from RCA and all the labels all the press everything and it just didn't work they just didn't hear that one song that's what they kept saying it says great group but we don't hear a single you've got to have a song that's going to identify you and explode you into the world that's so significant that you know anything you do after that really reflects back to that explosion you know just a great band with great great tunes overall isn't going to get it we don't hear that one song so when they heard this is the way love is that wasn't the song for them when they heard the lust that wasn't it when they heard perfect blues none of them don't this way um we weren't living in an album period i think if we had tried to get a deal in the 70s we would have been fine because they sign you and they give you about three or four albums to get to that point that wasn't happening anymore by 1988 they needed a single and they needed it now so right. we didn't get signed so we had all these tapes you know and all that stuff on sticks and stones were our the stuff we were shopping around you know all that the mythology of it being a bunch of leftovers and all that was contrived um i wrote all that stuff i created a narrative <laughs> for the album to make it sort of like a uh, lost you know rem you know dead letter office i wanted to give it that kind of thing mm -hmm. and but really that was I, I definitely fudged the truth a lot. The fact is, is that those were the best demos we'd made. They even got airplay that, what's that, K-Fog in San Francisco was playing This Is The Way Love Is from a reel-to-reel uh, -reel tape copy that we gave him. And it wow. did very well, but you couldn't buy the record. It wasn't out. So uh, Joe Taylor graciously gave us our own head. He said, you can own this stuff. We'll just do it album by album. You're not signing to the label. You don't owe us any records. It's like, we will license your stuff out. So Sticks and Stones came out. Then we did Pray Naked that way. Yeah, you're alone at the end of 
drowning, by that point, uh, Joey's thing had merged with Myrrh. And so that was a little bit more of a real record label signing. We got a big advance from them. We were on Myrrh, even though it was through Joe. You know, so when we started putting dirty lyrics or things that they deemed unsuitable, who would they call? Joe Taylor. You know, they wouldn't call us. They'd call him and he'd say, you can't put cussing on a Christian record. You can't do it. And I'm going, but Joe, it's just, the you know, ass, the word ass, you know, and it's like, I'm sorry, there's, you know, no tits, no cigarettes. That's the, that's the, that's the rule and no cussing. You can't do any of that. And I went, this is ridiculous. And they tried to get us to resign for a substantial amount of money. And we walked away from it because we didn't like the fact that they were manipulating our music. We turn the stuff in and then they tell us it wasn't Christian enough or it had a dirty word or we don't like the lyric content. I just went, you know, of course, now I, I kicked myself, you know, what an idiot I was. I should have just said, yes, walk all over. It's just give it, give me your money, you know, but we were young and <laughs> idealistic. Oh, my gosh. But, if we'd stayed with Murr, we could have sold so many more records and been so more popular. But I mean, they really liked us. They thought Drowning was fantastic and they put a lot of money into it with the videos and all of that and it sold very very well so if we'd stayed with Murr for a couple more years a couple more albums we probably could have gotten way more famouser is that a, even a word uh, but you know instead we told him doll to go to heck Aaron quit and moved to Nashville. David quit and moved to Atlanta. And we were a three-piece. So Joey offered us another deal and we put Tom Tom Blues. And that, I've been told, that sold even more than Drowning. So I think Joey and Gene made a, some good money on that record. I think <laughs> for a while there, we did really well, you know. And it was a little more underground, a little more hip. You know, we got in with a, a cooler group of people from LA, got away from the Nashville thing. So everything we've done since then has been pretty much independent. Yeah, they stick it to me, right to my face. They put me right down to the ground, put me right in my place. They hit me once, they hit me twice. They hit me three times, people. That's all right, all right, cause I'm a Way out 
The last several years, several of those albums have been reissued with these just gorgeous, uh, gorgeous treatment, design, remastered vinyl. Um, is it surprise you? How does how does that strike you? How involved in the process are you? And to know that people like like us are are willing to kickstart these things and get these records from 20, 30 years ago uh, redone. Uh, well, first of all, I want to say on behalf of the band and myself, we are very, very grateful that those projects, those reissue projects have been received and have given, have kept us alive and kept us in front of all you guys, because without that, I think, I don't know what we would have right now. I mean, that's made a big, big difference. Uh, Jeffrey Kotoff really, really cares about extremely high quality and I'm 100% involved. When when we do these projects, when we first start talking about them, Jeffrey and I work very closely, usually for a year or two. I have to go and find all of the bonus tracks. I have to look for photographs. I have to write essays. I have to, I mean, the 88 one was particularly daunting because we did a lot of things we've never done before, like cassettes and, and uh, creating a vinyl master all of that's under my supervision. I have to go in and re-edit everything to make it flow from side one to side two, three, whereas originally it was all one thing. Right. Um, so I'm involved from day one. I put in a lot of time with Jeffrey, and we've got a good team. You know, he's got a great artist. I have complete control over the Sonics, the remastering, all of it. So it's been a lot of fun, and they've, they've all come out really well. They've all raised a good amount of money. But we end up spending most of it on the project itself, especially with this pandemic. The 88 thing has been a disaster, but it's just about to be delivered. It should start dribbling out pretty soon. But uh, I really love the fact that Jeffrey's willing to do that and that our fans are willing to support it. It's been really good. Meanwhile, Bruce and Mark started their own label, which... Mezzo Music Limited, which the band, you know, we've been recording demos for the last seven, eight, nine years. We're finally going to get off our butts and try to finish those songs and maybe put out a new album or two or three. So uh, there is a lot of new music in the works, but um, it's helpful to have the archival stuff always there because that's the stuff that really mattered to all the fans all those years ago and to see it come back sounding better looking better with all the extra stuff all the goodies and the it's it's exciting it's fun i love it just no more pandemics to hold up hold it up for two years jesus drove a cadillac i'm sure it was pure gold it's dash made of leather and seeds tucked and rolled why god would his children have so many things like big old fancy houses
That's going to do it for part one of this epic exploration of the words, work, and wisdom of Michael Rowe. We'll be back with part two soon, but in the meantime, we have put together a special playlist of all things Rowe, including cuts from his bands and solo projects that you can find linked on the show notes page for this episode. Mike has also put together a special playlist of some of his favorite and most formative songs, so don't miss that. I'm going to keep the soapbox tucked away until the end of part two, so that will do it for this episode. I want to thank Mike Rowe for his openness and candor, as well as for offering over 40 years worth of soul-forming music for us all. Please share this episode, tell your friends and family, post it everywhere. Let's get Mike's story out far and wide. Thanks to Chris Taylor for allowing us to use the brilliant painting he made of Mr. Rowe as the cover for this episode. You can buy a customized lithograph of that painting from Chris, and I highly recommend that you do. You can find the link on the show notes page, or just head over to ChrisTaylorWorld.com. As always, thanks to my co-producer, Bruce A. Brown. The True Tunes podcast is a direct result of our love of this weird and wonderful music and the people who make it, many of whom we've been privileged to call friends for decades. Thanks to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our theme song. You'll find a list of all of the music on this episode on the show notes page, too. Just go to truetunes.com and click on Posts and then Podcast Show Notes to find the whole list of show notes pages. Please give us a review and rating at Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the show. Find and follow our weekly Spotify mix. Sign up on our email list. We've got some amazing stuff in store. The contents of this podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at jjt at truetunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee 37206. Until next time, this is JJT reminding you to stay tuned, stay true, and do it for love. Peace.